you got to get passionate about this thing. If the cross doesn't move you, nothing will move you. I'm offering you something that's greater than silver and gold. I'm offering you something that's greater than an increase in your pay on your job. I'm offering you a... There's no shortcuts to the glory. Week to week living. We've got to multiply our prayer life. We've got to multiply our efforts. And we are willing to give. God will always give it back to us in good measure that is pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Hey, thanks for checking out our Christian Life Church podcast. You will be hearing from one of our pastors or guest speakers, either at our Frankfurt or Lebanon campus. Prepare your hearts and your minds to receive a word from God. Thanks for listening. Enjoy and receive this message. Matter tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about the oneness of God. And this is going to be a series that I will not be um, able to complete uh, tonight for sure. But we will begin into this series tonight, and we will go forward as the Lord sees fit. Amen. Over the next few weeks, I hope to break open the Scripture and the bread of life and uh, be able to point some things, point to some things that will help you and help you grow and help your understanding. For some of you, this may seem to be redundant. but it should stir up our pure mind by way of remembrance, to remember that we're a one God people, to remember that it is, there's only one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 16, I actually printed a copy of my notes and gave them to Brother Mike tonight because I'm going to be referring to so many different scriptures, so if you have pen and paper, you may want to use those tonight. Uh, it may be beneficial to you to um, to take note and to use um, your own note-taking to be able to keep up with so many scriptures. And I'll try not to bog us down too much. I told Brother Mike I probably will not get through the 13 pages of notes that I had tonight. I said, I will go until I'm done or they are done. And so I'm going to be taking note tonight as we are going through the scripture. Amen. Mark chapter 16, and I'm going to begin with verse number 17 of Mark chapter 16. Amen. These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. So we're going to springboard out of this text tonight to talk a little bit about, to try to bring some clarity to the idea uh, of the right hand of God and what the scripture is talking about with the right hand of God. So we're going to talk a little bit about the right hand of God, the right hand of God. There are two varied understandings of the term the right hand of God. There is a literal and physical interpretation which would believe in a literal hand and a physical expression of God, literally stating the right hand of God. And then the term right hand, there's a second uh, understanding of the term right hand of God, and that term is viewed as a metaphor and is used in a figurative way in scripture. So we're going to we're going to look through this tonight so that we can perhaps gather 
our own view of what we believe that the Scripture is teaching. First of all, uh, let me say that there is no doctrine. We're going. This is very, very doctrinal tonight. What we're going to talk about tonight is very, very doctrinal. And doctrine matters. Can somebody say amen? Doctrine matters. And so... Um, it, it does matter what the Scripture says, and it does matter how we receive the Scripture. So um, th- it's very important that we, that we dissect and get a good understanding, a clear understanding, particularly when we are dealing with the oneness of God. So first of all, God is spirit. God is spirit. And so before we get anywhere into this, into this lesson tonight, we must understand that God is spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24, the scripture said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Luke chapter 24, verse 39, Jesus, of course, is dealing with his disciples and the doubter, Thomas, that was questioning who he was. And he said, behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones. I want you to say that with me. A spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. A spirit hath not flesh and bones as you see me have. John chapter 4 verse 24 I just read. God is spirit. Luke 24. For a spirit hath not flesh and and bones. God is and a spirit hath not flesh and bones. John chapter 1 verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father He hath declared him. He was the one that came to declare who God was, who God is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see. Why can they not see him? I'm going to let this settle for a moment. Why can they not see him? Because God is spirit, and a spirit hath not flesh and bones. All right, so when we are, when we are digging into doctrinal ideas of Scripture, here in the onset, let me explain to you, as we dig into doctrinal, deep doctrinal views of Scripture, The scripture clearly declares that there is no private interpretation, meaning we cannot or should not build a doctrine around one scripture, around one private idea in the text. But through many infallible proofs, through a multiplicity of scripture, there should always be a thread of scripture. There should always be a weave of scripture that declares the the beautiful truth of the Word of God. So, no man hath seen God at any time. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach, whom no man hath seen nor can see. It's impossible to see spirit, because a spirit hath not flesh and bones to whom be honor and power everlasting. So the first point that I want to bring to you tonight is that God is spirit. Say that with me again. God is spirit. 
before we go any further, we have to declare God is spirit. The second thing, God is omnipresent. Now, the word omnipresent simply is meaning it is an attribute of God alone by which is meant that God is free from the laws or limitations of space. God is omnipresent. It is essential to the right conception of God in the respect that we avoid all materialistic notions of God. God is spirit and he is not limited to the laws of time and space. You and I are limited. So through our finite minds, it is hard to comprehend an infinite God. Can somebody say amen to that? It is hard to comprehend an infinite God because we have finite minds. And so when we think of God, it is, becomes very easy for us to think of God in a very physical realm instead of understanding God is spirit. There is no physical form. There is, there, God is spirit. No man hath seen spirit. You cannot see spirit. God is omnipresent, meaning God is not limited by time or space. So the scripture declares, of course, with God one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. So when God speaks a word, it is going to come to pass, but it does not come to pass in our finite mind's time frame. So we think, well, God said it's going to happen, so God, I give you three days to do it. And I believe that's when God laughs because he's, he's looking at us saying, you're, you're, here you are, the lowly base human that you are. You are looking at things and trying to declare when God is going to do what he's going to do. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere, fills all time and all space. Therefore, we can find God here. We can find God in our home, in our car, in our office. God is wherever you are. David talks about it and says, if I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I go into the very depths of the earth, he uses the term, the King James Version uses the term hell. It's not speaking, it's, it's talking about into the depth of the earth. He talks about if I go into the depth of the sea, anywhere that I go, David said, I can't flee from your presence because he's omnipresent meaning God is everywhere at all times. So God can be with you on your job and with me on mine all at the same time. God can be in your house and in my house all at the same time because he's omnipresent. God can deal with your heart and your heart and your heart and your heart and my heart and be dealing with somebody's heart on the other side of the world all at the same time. So God is spirit. And that spirit is omnipresent. Psalm 139, I just quoted to you where David is declaring, whether shall I go from, from your spirit? How can I flee from your presence? He said, if I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me, and the right hand shall hold me. Because wherever we are, God is there. Therefore, it becomes very easy for us to speak an encouraging word to somebody who feels like they're ever alone. It's impossible to be alone because God's omnipresent. So at your loneliest moment, the only reason you're not sensing the presence of God is because you're overwhelmed with the reality of your situation. Rather than paying attention to an omnipresent God that is already wherever you are. All right, so let's look at a figurative description of God and his attributes. Though we're not at liberty to interpret scripture everywhere in an allegorical or a figurative way, if the scripture uses figurative terms to describe God, then we must interpret those in the same manner. 
so the scripture uses, it talks about, for instance, John. In the Gospel of John, if you read through the Gospel of John, you'll begin to see John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the same was in the beginning with God. And he goes on talking about this Word. And then he goes on in chapter 2. So if you look through the Gospel of John, he talks about wind, he talks about water, he meets the woman at the well, he meets Nicodemus. Um, And in every point, Jesus tells the woman at the well, if you knew who I was, you would ask of him a drink, and he would give you living water. Was Jesus literally talking about water? Of course not. He's figuratively speaking. He's at a well, he's with a woman, and he's talking to a woman at a well about water because that's the common theme. And he begins to describe himself as water. And he said, if, you, if you'd ask me, I'd give you living water and you would never thirst again. Well, he's not really talking about physical water like we think of water. He's using the common things of, of earth to try to make a spiritual point or a spiritual view. So we must understand that God is expressed figuratively and literally. And so we must dissect Scripture to understand when God is speaking both figurative and and naturally. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, the sovereignty of God is expressed figuratively here. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne. Picture this with me, would you? The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? So God just created, he said, all of heaven is my throne. Earth is a footstool. I'm so big, how in the world are you going to build build a house that can house me? Now is he literally talking about heaven being a physical chair? He's figuratively speaking about his his majesty, his his greatness, how vast that he is. And he's saying, you can build a house, you can build a church, you can dedicate it to God, but what have we really done because this house, what is it to compare with the whole earth is just his footstool because he's so vast. So the moment that we began to believe that we can house all of God in this building, we have just misunderstood the vastness of God. He's omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere, filling all time and space. Space. So heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. Now how are you going to build me a house? How are you going to build me a place to rest? Because I am so massive, I'm so vast. And so God speaks of himself in a figurative way so that we could be able to grasp the vastness of God. God's miraculous power is expressed figuratively. Exodus chapter 8 verse 19. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So when the plagues came, when things came upon Pharaoh, they declare unto him, what you are experiencing seems to be overwhelming you in life. This is only the work of the finger of God. Is he literally saying God's finger reached down and did this work, or is he figuratively declaring that if you want to know really how powerful God is, don't make him open his whole hand up on you. And certainly don't make him use two hands. Because your misery that you're in was only just the work of a finger. He certainly has not put his biceps into it. He certainly has not put his energy and effort into it. It is just 
the finger of God. Exodus 15, verse 8. And with the blast of thy nostrils, the waters gathered together. It's kind of humorous in that verse. With the blast of thy nostrils, the flood stood up right as a heap, and the depth were congealed in the heart of the sea. So it is speaking figuratively that when the wind blew, it was just a blast of his nostrils. Talking about how powerful and great and mighty God is. So when a hurricane comes through, it would be one to say, God just, God just blew upon the earth. It was just the breath of God. So it's speaking of God in a figurative way, not a literal way. So God's omniscience is expressed figuratively. The fact that God can see everywhere and see all things. Proverbs 15, verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. How many eyes does God have? Is that what it's saying? Of course not. It's speaking figuratively that the eyes of the Lord, in other words, God can see all things. And if you study through the scripture, you'll be able to, you'll see a whole thread talking about the eyes of the Lord. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro. That would almost make a good horror movie. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Of course, the eyes of the Lord are not literally running with legs on them. He is speaking figuratively about the fact that God, nothing goes unnoticed with God. So in understanding the scripture, I'm trying to help you tonight understand the word of God. And so understanding the scripture and unfolding the scripture as we began to look in to be able to see how that figuratively the things, the attributes of God are unfolded. God's protection is also expressed figuratively. Psalm 36, verse 7. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Is it literal wings? It's figurative. It is drawing a parallel or a picture of, of, of a bird or a hen or an eagle that would spread its wings to create a shadow for its, its offspring. It would, they would trust under the shadow of the wing when, when one would, when, when an assailant would come in to try to destroy or hurt one of the little ones, the wings immediately go out. I'm a nature lover. Our pond has some geese. I'm, I'm not so much in love with geese. I have to clean up after them. But it's interesting to see one of the geese that's out here has a couple of little ones that the fox has not already taken care of that. We have a little fox that runs around out here as well. and It's usually a, it's, it's a fox and a goose, not a cat and a mouse. And so the geese are trying to survive and the fox is trying to survive. And so the battle rages. Occasionally I'll see a, a bird of prey come in and begin to fly and soar. And it is amazing to watch the geese and how they respond as a hawk or one of the larger birds of prey will come in and begin to soar over the pond. And there they are with a little chicklet that is, the, the, the little goslin, I guess it's called, that is with it. And one, one of the geese out here has two little ones right now that I've been watching the last few days. And watch what happens as soon as something uh, even if you or I walk out to the pond, the goose doesn't take off and leave. Instead, it begins to move away, but immediately begins to posture itself to call those little goslings under its wings, to get it as close to it as possible. And they trust under the shadow of the wing of that mother hen. God is... Saul, David is declaring in Psalm 
the children of men trust under the shadow of thy wing. Meaning if we can just get close enough to God, that we can trust in him because just the same he has, he puts about a protection over us. It's figurative. It's speaking figuratively. And so, so is the, the, the topic of the right hand. This is what we're getting to tonight, and so let me hurry along. There is, first, there is significance to the discussion here of the right hand. We have a lot of newer folks that are studying Scripture and coming through your Bible studies, and so I'm going to be breaking down some of these very basic principles of Scripture to try to help open our minds and understanding to the Word of God. Now, there's a significance to the right hand. Culturally, most humans are right-handed. Isn't that strange? But they say that left-handed people are in the right mind. I don't know. Does that make all the rest of us? All the rest of us are in a wrong mind. I don't know. In most cultures, the right hand signifies strength, skill, and dexterity. The very word dexterity comes from the Latin word dexter, which means on the right side. And so culturally, it was thought, it was thought of that the right hand, the right hand signifies strength and power and skill. The right hand also signifies the a position of honor or blessing or preeminence. So in when David in Psalm 16 and 11, Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's talking about at the blessings of God. It's not a physical right hand. Psalm 48, verse 10, Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Well, what's wrong with the left hand? Is it not full of righteousness too? It is speaking that the strength of God is full of righteousness. The power of God is full of righteousness. So it is speaking figuratively. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Physically sitting with Christ Jesus or spiritually? Of course it is speaking spiritually. The mother of James and John in Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John came and said to Jesus, grant that my two sons may sit on the right hand and on the left. Joseph brings Manasseh and Ephraim to be blessed. Now this is interesting because here becomes the cultural significance of the right hand. In Genesis 48, verse 18, when they came, Joseph placed Manasseh, the older, on the right side of Jacob so that he would be blessed. Because that right hand being laid upon the hand of, of the older, it was the right hand that would go toward the, the, the blessing to the older. But Jacob crossed his hands, the Bible said, signifying that the younger will serve the older. So he crosses his hand to give the blessing to whom God had spoken to give the blessing. So the, 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 in the scripture, the idea of the right hand is so significant. Then we read, of course, Jesus at the right hand of God. The obvious purpose for this description is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than it stating that Jesus is at the left hand of God, it speaks at the right hand of God, which is speaking of power and authority. So when the scripture speaks of Jesus being at the right hand of God, it, is, it, would, it would be improper for us to dissect Scripture in all the different verses that I've already shared with you and come to a conclusion and think that the Scripture is speaking of a literal right hand of God. 
Instead, it is speaking an allegory. It is speaking purposefully that Jesus is at the power and authority of God. Because Jesus is not merely a man, but a man in whom dwells the almighty power of the Spirit of God and has been exalted to the highest position of honor and prestige. Because no other man can say that they're at the right hand of God. Jesus was not merely a man. Jesus was God manifest in flesh. Because God is spirit. No man can see a spirit. No man has seen God. So the only image of God is the man Christ Jesus. That's the only image of God. Because God is spirit and it is invisible and cannot be seen. So the spirit overshadowed Mary and brought forth a son, a role. It was temporary. It was not for eternity. It was in the mind of God from the beginning. The Son, Jesus, was in the mind of God, in the plan of God for the purpose of salvation from the beginning. But He did not exist until the Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived to bring forth a Son. When Jesus died on the cross, God did not die. Part of God did not die because God is spirit. Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, died. God did not die. Jesus died. Jesus was 100% man. Not 50% man and 50% God. No, he was 100% man and 100% God. He was not part of God. He was God. He was God manifest in flesh. Therefore, Jesus can say, I and my Father are one. He didn't say, I am part of my Father. Part of the Father is in me. He said, I and my Father are one. When you have seen me, you haven't seen a look-alike. You haven't seen a resemblance. When you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The only thing you're going to ever see out of God is the man Christ Jesus. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. How do you sit on the right hand of a spirit? There is a figurative notion here that when Jesus ascended, this is talking about after the death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus ascends up into heaven. When Jesus goes up from the Mount of Transfiguration and he goes to sit at the right hand of God is not a literal position of sitting. That would be completely a misrepresentation of Scripture. Instead, when he goes to the right hand of God, the term sitting, of course, means the redemptive work of the cross is complete. So therefore, he is not standing, but he is sitting. Does that make sense? So therefore, there is no more work for him to do. He now has completed the work. When he was on the cross, what is the last thing he said before he gave up the ghost? It is finished. He sat down. It is finished. My work here is done. So from the point of his conception, through his life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection, it is finished. My work is done. The work of the Son is done. That's why we do not teach, preach, believe, or find in Scripture the idea of the eternal sonship. We will talk about that later. We do not find the eternal sonship, the redemptive work of the man Christ Jesus, 
the redemptive work of the Son of God was to die on the cross, his very purpose. He died on the cross, resurrected, ascended into heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father. So therefore, not a physical right hand, but he sits down. In other words, his work is completed, and he is at the point of power and authority with God. So why, why do they not see two persons? First off, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, no one has ever seen God. God emphatically declared that there is no one beside him. Jesus emphatically declared there is no one beside him. Before the birth of Christ, the Jews declared, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Therefore we teach one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to find the idea of a triune God. It does not exist in Scripture. There is but one God, one Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. It's the same God. Wait, did I say in you all? Exactly right. The Holy Ghost is Christ in us. It's not a third portion of the Trinity. It is God in us. It is the attribute. It is the manifestation. It is what God is doing. It is God at work in our life. The Holy Spirit The Holy Ghost is God at work in our life. Not part of God, it is all of God. It is God working in our life. So the eternal God of glory that spoke, put the world into existence, put the stars into existence, that God lives inside of me and you. Not a portion of God, but if we have an understanding of God, an omnipresent God that can be at all places at all times, all at the same time, deal with all sorts of people all at the same time, deal with everybody all over the whole world all at the same time. That same God can also dwell in me and in you, not in part but in whole. It's difficult for the carnal mind to comprehend, but we have to get, we have to get it right and get an understanding of the awesomeness and the a God who, who declares of himself, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Who can build a habitation for the Lord? So therefore, that's how you cannot house, can you house every, every bit of God and keep him all to yourself? Absolutely not, because God cannot be contained. Because he's omnipresent. He is everywhere. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11 I, even I, am the Lord beside me. There is no Savior. Wait, can we get that on the screen? Isaiah 43, verse 11. I don't want them to think I'm making this up. Read it with me. This is God speaking, the prophet Isaiah speaking, some 500 plus years before the birth of Christ. God is speaking, I even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no, wait, who's the Savior? Are we getting confused now? Or are we getting the revelation? Because God says, beside me there is no Savior. That's why Jesus could say, I and my Father, we're not separate, we're one. He speaks before the birth of Christ. Beside me there is no Savior. Because he was, Jesus was, God manifest in the flesh. He was God, not a portion of God. So the redemptive work, the work of the Savior, Isaiah is declaring as God is saying, I am the Lord and beside me there is no Savior. Isaiah 44 verse 6 Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. 
if you study this in the original translation, we find it multiple times through Scripture. I am the first, I am the last. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. Alpha, the first letter in the alphabet. I am the first, the first letter in the alphabet. I am Omega, the the last letter in the alphabet. And everything in between must understand that it is all fits within the confines of who God is. I was before time and I will be after time. I am Alpha and Omega. I am before man and I will be after man. He said, I am the first and I am the last. And then what did he say? And beside me, beside me, there is no God. There is no other God beside me. He is declaring of himself. Note, also God will not share his glory. Isaiah 48 and 11, for mine own sake, even for mine own sake, will I do it? For how should my name be polluted? I will not give my glory to another. The scripture itself, the, if, if, if it is not clear that there is a, there is a unification of the oneness of God. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. The Scripture would be incredibly difficult to understand if we did not study the Scripture to clearly see the oneness of God. Because he said, beside me there is no God. Then he said, I will not give my glory to another. Then, how do we deal with Jesus who was glorified? The only thing we can see is either the scripture is imperfect and incorrect, which we know it is not, or either Jesus Christ was God because he declared, I won't give my glory to another. It's going to belong to me. And so therefore he was He was God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians chapter 1. Y'all doing all right out there? Have I worn you out yet? Almost. I see a few heads nodding. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even forgiveness of sin. Who is the, I want you to read it now, verse 15, read it Read it out loud with me. Colossians 1, verse 15, read it now. Who is the image of the invisible God? Who is the image of the invisible God? Jesus Christ, in whom, verse 14, just before you get there, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even forgiveness of sins, Who is the image of the invisible God? The only image of the invisible God is in Christ Jesus. He is the firstborn of every creature. So when people get some weird, strange idea that when they get to heaven, they're going to see two or three sitting on thrones and there's going to be the Father and there's going to be the Son, there is no image other than the man Christ Jesus. The scripture declares very clearly, very clearly, Jesus is the image of the invisible God because God is spirit. And so therefore there is no form, there is no image, there is no body. The only body is the man Christ Jesus. But what about the Holy Spirit? Isn't there going to be three thrones and there's going to be God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost? Somehow, people have polluted true doctrine to teach a heresy that there will be three that sits on a throne. You find it nowhere in Scripture. There is going to be one throne, and Jesus will be the one on the throne. 
is this Jesus? He is the eternal God of glory. It's the only name that God ever received. It was the man Christ Jesus. It was the only image of God. So as Jesus is ascending up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's ascending into glory. And just before he ascends, he looks at those followers that are there with him and he tells them, if I go away, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go, there you can be also. But go and tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued or filled with power from on high. He said the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, is going to come not many days from now, not many days hence. He says that the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, is going to come. When the Holy Ghost came, did the Holy Ghost come as an image? Of course not. When the Holy Ghost came, the only way they knew the Holy Ghost had come was because they heard them speak with other tongues and glorify God, which was a sign that the human body had been filled or infilled with the Holy Ghost. And so out of their belly shall flow rivers of living water. Not physical water, not literal water. It is the Spirit. It is the Holy Ghost infilling. It is the comforter that Jesus declares. Not another image, not a third person in the Trinity. He is saying the eternal God of glory, the invisible God that created heaven and earth, that spoke everything into existence, come in one physical body, in the flesh, in the man, Christ Jesus, the only form, the only image of the invisible God. As he departs, he says the Comforter is going to come. He also says that he was going to come in his name. We'll talk about that in another scripture, in another lesson. It was not a third person in the Trinity, but it was the eternal God of glory that is going to come and indwell humanity. So there's going to be one throne, and Jesus is on the throne. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. I've got to hurry. And immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. And how many sat on the throne? One sat on the throne. Revelation 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So i got to wrap this idea up so we can get out of here. The right hand denotes power. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. Ephesians 1, verse 20 through 22, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. It has to be figurative because there is no literal right hand of God. God is spirit. So he set him at the point of power or favor in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. That's why the name of Jesus is higher than any other name because he set him at a point where he is higher with power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. Verse 22, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. That's why we preach Jesus. Because he is the head of the church. Don't ever get it wrong. A committee's not the head of the church. The board of trustees is not the head of the church. The pastor's not the head of the church. Jesus Christ himself is the head of the church. He is the chief cornerstone. I got to stay with my, my thought here because I'm running out of time. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. The, the last enemy shall be destroyed as death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is ex accepted which 
did put all things under him. And when all things are subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subjected to him that put all things under him that God may be in all. Even angels and powers are subject to him. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, there again, is it physical or is it speaking of a point of authority in a place, a position? And is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Not them, him, because there's one that is on the throne. So the right hand reveals the glory of Jesus Christ. At Stephen Stoning, he revealed the glory of Jesus as a position of supreme power and authority. In Acts chapter 7, verse 55, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now he's not sitting, he saw him standing. Because Stephen is being stoned. And he saw him standing at the right hand of God, meaning that his work was continuing. While on earth he appeared to be an ordinary man, the son of Joseph and Mary, the carpenter's son. After the resurrection and ascension, he appeared with visible glory and power. He walked in to the room where the disciples were, and the doors were closed because he was in a glorified body. I've got to move quickly. I'm going to skip just a little bit. The right hand also denotes Christ's mediatorial work. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. This does not mean that Christ has been kneeling and praying to a, de to a deity on our behalf. Christ's sacrifice was once and forever accomplished at Calvary. And the, the work that Jesus did at Calvary did not end at the point of his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words... Anybody who misunderstands and misinterprets Scripture to see that Jesus, here is little Jesus sitting beside Father God and is kneeling and praying to him and asking him, please have mercy on these people down here in Frankfort, Indiana, is misrepresenting Scripture altogether. Because the mediatorial work that Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary and his blood, his blood continues to make intercession for us. It is forever making intercession for us, meaning when we fail, his blood is still working in our life because the work of Calvary, the redemptive work of Calvary is an eternal work, and it is ever making intercession for us. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's not there standing beside a third person of the Trinity declaring, oh, forgive them, not at all. The redemptive work of Calvary has washed us and cleansed us. And if we sin, we go back and do our first works over again. We go back to the point of repentance and the blood of Jesus washes and cleanses us because his blood still works. And it still works for us. And it's still doing its work for us. And so it is forever working for us. Let me try to find a way to an exit ramp here. John chapter 19, verse 30, when Jesus declares, it is finished. He is talking about his work here on earth is finished. Not that the work of Calvary is finished. His work as the son, the sonship is finished. That work is completed. He now, he now reigns as the king of glory. This one-time sacrifice has a continuing effect upon our life. Jesus doesn't have to go back 
and be crucified all over again because somebody comes to the point of repentance, the work of Calvary is continuing to cleanse them. So when Christ sat down, denoting again his work was completed, he sat down. Jesus Christ's intercession is a continuing work. Does that make sense? His intercession is a continuing work. So when it says he is forever interceding, he is forever making intercession for us, it means that the work that he did in his lifetime here on earth by his death, burial, and resurrection, that work is a continuing work, meaning that work still works. That work is forever working in our life. His sacrifice is continually effective in our life. If we sin, we still have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Who being in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his, perf- of his person, and upholding all things by the power of his word, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the the right hand of the majesty on high. I've got a lot of scripture here. I'm going to just skip through some of these. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Hebrews 10, verse 11 and 12. Let me read that in closing. But this man after, Hebrews 10, verse 12. But but this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, what does it say? For sins forever. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice himself for sins forever. See the continuing work? See the continuing work? He is forever making intercession because the one time that he died, buried, and resurrected is a continuing work. It is a work that is going forever. After that, he sat down at the right hand of God because the work that he did is continuing. It's forever. There's no more work for him to do. He doesn't have to go back and die again. He doesn't have to go make intercession because the work he did is making intercession for us. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. In closing, the book of Revelation never describes Jesus Christ as being on the right hand of God. Why is this? Because the role of a powerful mediator will no longer be necessary when we get to heaven. Because when we get to heaven, then we will be saved. So right now, I know we loosely use it, and it's fine. We, we used to sing, I know I'm saved, and I'm so glad about it. Remember? But the truth is, is we're in the process of being saved. The blood's still working in our life. We need a mediator. But Revelation never speaks about a powerful mediator that we need today because when we get to heaven, then we are saved. Right now, we are safe. We're safe by his grace. We're safe by his blood. But when we get to heaven, then we are saved. We no longer need a mediator. Revelation 22, verse 3, and there shall be no more curse. Why? Because we're saved. There's no more curse. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. It, notice the throne, and the Lamb shall be in it. Who's the Lamb? Jesus Christ shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. So when we get to heaven, who will we see? We're going to see one. We're going to see one that is on the throne. We're going to see Jesus Christ himself. Jesus will be the one on the throne who is both God and the Lamb, who is both Father and Son. There will be one on the throne. Aren't you glad that you know who he is? Aren't you glad you know his name? His name's Jesus. You're done. I'm done. God bless you. Stand with me tonight. We're going to come back and do some more teaching on the oneness of God. I'm going to try to take our Wednesday nights for the next few weeks. And I'm going to try to break down some of the subjects of the oneness of God, trying to help bring clarity to our minds and thoughts and refresh our memories to know that Jesus Christ, without him, we are nothing. We have nothing. All salvation is through him. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this. Lord, we thank you for this.